Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. Over the past several weeks, we have done a deep and broad dive into the area of ritual invention. Uh, We've talked about ritual innovation. Over the entire experience, we have explored the premise that rituals themselves are basically routine elevated. And we've taken some of the greatest social science authors on these topics, and we've looked at the principles and the examples that they use to illustrate those principles. Um, And those principles draw boundaries for us as to what actually makes for a ritual, because it would be really easy to point to a routine or to point to a habit, as some people have um, used that word throughout our class and also in um, discourse on this topic as well. It's so easy to point to something that's a habit or a uh, routine and say, oh, yeah, it's my ritual to do this, that or the other. But what actually makes for a ritual that is determined by the principles by which we define ritual. And what I hope we've done over the course of these few weeks is both narrow and broaden those uh, parameters. So we've narrowed the parameters of what makes a ritual a ritual by saying, well, you can't just gesture wildly at something that you do and say, oh, yeah, it's my ritual to have a cup of coffee in the morning. Is it, though? I mean, sure. It might be a habit to have a cup of coffee in the morning, but it's a ritual to, to pull out a particular mug in the morning. Right? This is the mug that I need to drink out of because it has this one picture and I made it and I don't know, just drinking out of it. The practical thing is having the caffeine, but drinking out of this mug, that's when it's beyond the practical, when it has the je ne sais quoi, that magical quality to it, right? And then, and then, and then. So it's the principles that narrow us from just calling anything a ritual, right? But also, I hope that this class so far has additionally broadened your perspective on what ritual can be. Because it would be easy to call things ritual only that which is defined by formalistic rabbinic or other religious notions of what makes for ritual. Ritual is not just that which falls within categorical blessing guidelines. Ritual is not just that which is described in Talmudic literature or the books that come thereafter out of the branches of the tree trunk of Talmud. Ritual is anything that we make to be ritual based on those principles and may or may not overlap in the Venn diagram of religion. So that's where our exploration so far of, you know, reading Harry Potter, reading Jane Eyre as, uh, as a religious book, ostensibly, right? Reading it ritually, reading it like uh, Lectio Divinum, like this, this um, special way of reading a sacred text. Um, It's, it's where that 
helps us to broaden our perspective on what ritual can possibly be too, right? So the, the point is to both narrow and to broaden what ritual can possibly be. So we want, want to think about the categories in our life that can, um, it, we want to define what ritual is, which we did early on, and we want to also expand for ourselves the possibility of where in our lives ritual can enter in. Right? Because we don't want to limit ourselves to only ever doing ritual, either in the spaces that we say, that's a ritual space, or in the times where we say, well, that's a time when I do ritual. Ritual can be any time. Ritual can be any space. And ritual can be invented by and enacted by any one of us. So that's all true, even as ritual is not just anything we do. Ritual is that which falls within the boundaries of all of those parameters that we've been talking about. Okay? So that's my recap of where we've gotten to so far. Everyone with me on those kind of the narrow and the expanse? Okay, great, fantastic. So now that we've gotten there, what I wanna do is I want to look exclusively through the Jewish lens now, because this is a, a course taught through a synagogue space, and I want us to think about Jewish ritual, and I, I'd like for the takeaway from this to be your going off and feeling empowered to do one or both of two things. I'd like you to explore the world of innovative rituals as they do exist, and also feel empowered to do your own ritual innovation as some people did some sharing last time about their own ritual innovations that they've been exploring uh, on their own uh, time and of their own accord. So uh, in order for us to get into that mindset, I'd like for us to go back to an exercise that we started several weeks back, and we're going to do a little bit more expansively. Speaking of expanse, we're going to do a little bit. Yeah. Could you kind of turn your camera just a bit or something? There's a reflex that goes right down through the center of your face. But when you move over to your left, it kind of goes away. It's yeah. It's so my, it's my, it's the light. It's, you yeah. know, it's, it's the, um, it's better now. Had lighting in my room. It's gone. Thank it's you. Just, thank you. It's the it's the uh, we installed recessed lighting in our room, and so there's a occasionally a a ray of light, an angelic ray of light passes through my face annoyingly. So thank you. Um, okay, so we are going to. Okay, we are going to. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna screen share. Give me just a second. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to share this screen. And what I'd like for us to do is go ahead either by way of unmuting yourself or typing in the chat, whichever is the easier thing for you. I'd like for us to, to populate a list of the different points in the life cycle that have existing rituals, whether they're modern or ancient, that have existing rituals in the Jewish tradition to allow us to mark those occasions. So 
I'm going to anybody else, but I'm not seeing any screen sharing. I'm about to share the screen. Oh, I thought you did it already. Sorry. I'm about to share this uh, document. We're going to call it the life cycles. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to populate this all together. So I'm going to put them in the order as I want to, to um, populate it. But I'd love for each of you to share either out loud or in a chat. I'd love for you to share. Birth involves brismilla for a male and a naming ceremony or creative eighth day um, ritual for a female. And then for a firstborn, there's the additional thing of the redemption of the firstborn. Um, so I feel like birth is covered. I don't need to invent something new. Sorry, my internet's a little choppy. One second. Very strange. Okay. Can you still see? Yeah. It's the typing is not very big. I can make it bigger in a moment. Okay. Um, one second. Okay. I'll look at the chat too. Uh, let's see. Different diaspora customs. First Friday after the child's birth. Right. The, the um, Z- Habat and Shalom Zafar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hang on. Can't get my computer to respond fast enough. Okay. I have a question. Yeah, please. Now is a great time for questions because I'm having trouble getting, uh, getting the the screen share to to share fast enough. Um, okay, so like in very traditional families, they don't do any preparation during the pregnancy. There's no baby shower. There's no shopping for a crib or anything. Then when the baby comes, there's like this mad dash in 20 hours before the mom comes home with the baby to get everything. Um. But that's like really established at this point. It's not like, oh, my God, it's chaos. It's like, you know, everyone in that community knows that that's how it's going to be with the first child. So would that be considered like a de facto ritual? So that that's a that's a really wonderful question. Um, I I suppose we have to sort of test it by the um, by the principles. Right. Of of. of um, what makes a ritual ritual, right? And I, mm-hmm. I, I would struggle to categorize it as as a as a ritual um, because I think that there's not much beyond the practical. If you could say that there was a something about it that's beyond the practical, um, I feel like in a way. The part that leads up to it is not practical. So this whole idea of, you know, not kind of not wanting to jinx it. I mean, I guess in a way it's practical, but it's much more spiritually emotional than it is practical. Right. Um, but the, and then the, so this is like the outgrowth of that. It's not really. Right. Right. I think that it, it would need to, I think that it's a possible, it's a, it's a candidate but it needs uh, it needs definition, right? It needs okay. defining, right? Okay. Um, so I think the added layer to that is so the same was 
true with my kids. My mother was adamant that nothing could come to my house. Um, but then, so where the, the ritual maybe comes in is, um, yeah, this is all about keeping the evil eye away. So as soon as my kids were born, my mom tied a red bendle on their wrists and also put um, like a tiny, tiny mezuzah, like with a pin on their on the corner of their beds. And so maybe there in those actions, you start to see a little bit of ritual associated with yes. this sort of broad concept of like keeping away the evil eye. Um, yeah. Did your mom do those amulets, um, Lilith, to keep Lilith away, that the legend or the image of Lilith, which is why the feminist magazine is, named Lilith is to steal children and that some groups of Jews put basically amulets, tchotchkes around the crib to keep Lilith away. Yeah. These are all wonderful, um, wonderful ideas. And I think that there is, again, this is where my being not a social scientist, but rather a rabbi and a cantor gets in the way of my being able to answer this so succinctly. But I think that there is a uh, significant difference between a, um, a cultural practice that revolves around a superstition and a ritual. And I think there is a distinction there. But right? it needs a little more in-depth research for me to offer what the border boundary is. I do think this idea that there might be an event, an action of something around the tying of a bindle around a baby's wrist to ward off the vibe and that sort of a thing, that could certainly be a ritualized moment. Yes, I agree. Let's, let's go ahead and name, even as I'm... Um, still busy uh, bringing the document back up. I just restarted um, my uh, my internet browser um, so that we could have a less choppy experience, I hope. Um, <clears throat> I uh, Let's continue to populate the life cycle list. So we did a bunch of baby-related uh, things. We have Zevitabad and Preet Mila and baby naming, that sort of a thing. What else do we have in that list of life cycles that we um, that we do as Jews? And oh yes, and P. John had been. I'll, I'll look at the chat in just a second. When when a child starts school, the dropping of a bit of honey on the book would that be considered a ritual to make learning sweet? Uh, yes. So um, that's part of the option. Yes. So give me a, just a moment. I'm going to reshare the screen and I'll write that down as well. Yes. And we talked a bit about Upshur last time in a lot of different ways. I'll reshare this and I'll repopulate the screen again. Okay, so here we go. My um my internet is very cranky today, sorry. But you're all being very patient about it and I appreciate that. Um so yes, yeah, so an upshurn. Uh and then we had Pidion Haben. I'm gonna not trust my Google Chrome right now and I'm gonna continue writing in um, in the chat because I'm impatient right now. <laughs> so I want to keep going on our on our conversation, not hold this up. So Pidion Haben, good. 
uh, and, um, and let's see, and, and Upshurn, and then, um, we had someone wrote, wrote in a bar bat mitzvah, right? B mitzvah. Is there anything between Pijon Haben and bar and bat mitzvah? You just mentioned it with Upshurn. Right, Upshurn. That's between, and, and the honey, the starting of school. Right. Is, uh, but what's the ritual? That's a life cycle, but what's the ritual? What about um, like a first grade sitter party when you get your first sidur and there's like a party? Right. <laughs> right. I would call that a program. I would I would criticize it even and call it a program <laughs> but not a ritual. Okay. But maybe the receipt but maybe the receipt of the sidor might be a ritual, right? Maybe the decorating of a sidor cover is considered that, possibly. I agree. Um maybe that could be ritualized. Um, yes, maybe one, ritual adjacent. Nice. One thing, in, I mean, I'm showing up at the last minute in terms of the development of this class, but I think for something to be a ritual, it has to not depend on where the child goes to school. And that a Siddur ceremony is certainly something that happens in a Jewish day school. And may also be something that happens in a supplemental Hebrew school or religious school, but doesn't happen in a public school. And a ritual, I think, has to reach farther than that um, in terms of the people who do it. I will, I'm, I'm going to challenge that notion and say that, a ritual definitely can be very specific uh, to to a, an individual place. What I will say, I think you're spot on about, is that the meaning of that ritual is limited to the institution, to the community that it applies to. So, um, so Rachel, what what you're so what you're bringing up that's so poignant is that the meaning of that ritual is constricted by the construction of that ritual around what people understand in that community. So universality of a ritual, like you you can't invent a ritual that you hope lots of people will adopt or appreciate that's limited by people understanding, you know, something that's in another language, something that people may or may not get at that age, that sort of a thing. But rituals happen all the time that are limited only to certain subsets of subsets of subsets of communities. Um, and, and that's a part of ritual practice is, is that it's only appreciable by the people who are participating in it. Um, like a, like a, um, like a mezuzah, like a Hanukkah tabai, like fixing an, a mezuzah, right? You know, it's it only applies to, to somebody who would, who would put a mezuzah on their house, but it's, but it's appropriate for anybody who would put them as is on their house. Um, let's, let's do uh, past B'nai Mitzvah. What are other life cycle events that happen after B'nai Mitzvah? Engagement and wedding, right? Good. Yeah, engagement and wedding. Yeah, and also graduations. Great. But what exists as a ritual for graduation in Jewish life? Posting a notice in the Bethon weekly announcements. Right. Uh, I would say, um, I would say, um, 
I was going to say communion. Um, <laughs> that's the wrong word. Uh, um, confirmation. Thank you. Confirmation. Thanks. I swear I'm a rabbi. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's what I was looking for. Tybal, please jump in. Um, my internet is unstable. I'm just saying. So it may take, it's been going down all day. So I thought it would take less juice to type in the chat, but I have trouble typing. But I had put in confirmation, but what I wanted to say and didn't spell it correctly, confirmation is so complicated Mm. because of how the history in the reform movement and how it started out and replacing B'nai Mitzvah. And then at a certain point, conservative congregations said, oh, yes, we're going to try this too. But in terms of what meaning is invested is a ritual. I think in some ways it's so community dependent. And even those at least conservative synagogues, the one in which I taught the longest, there were all these kids who continued post B'nai Mitzvah, but then would not come on Shavuos and skip public school. So they, the ritual that it was supposed to complete the learning they, in theory, did the learning, trying to figure out how to lower my hand, sorry. Um, they, in theory, did the learning, but they wouldn't do the ritual because it meant skipping public school. And oftentimes, these were very right. good students and didn't want to skip school. So confirmation just is so interesting in many ways in a conservative world. What you're bringing up is such a wonderful set of points about confirmation and about its emergence, but it's also bringing up a wonderful meta set of points that it shares with mikvah in particular, because it has to do with reclamation of ritual. It also has to do with authenticity of ritual. So confirmation has a very different set of origins than mikvah, of course. So mikvah is an ancient tradition. It's a tradition that people were uncomfortable with for all sorts of reasons and experienced a reclamation during second wave feminism in America. Uh, And there's a whole fascinating history behind that. I teach a whole separate class on that. And if you really want to know about it, then I recommend that you talk to Rachel Adler because you can just learn straight from the primary source herself instead of. um, You said Rachel, Rachel Adler is in Temple Betham community. Yeah, Rachel Adler is is a a regular. I need uh, to add, Rachel Adler just within the last month moved out of Los Angeles and moved to Pittsburgh. She is available (laughs) by email. She is extremely responsive to requests for information. Um, we were good friends when she lived here, which is one reason I know that she moved. Um, but, uh, yes, she was a member of Temple Beth Am. She davened with the library minion sporadically. And I say that sporadically. She had serious health issues. That prevented her from going to shul, particularly, I mean, pandemic, but she had health issues for years before the pandemic. Yeah. And and the reason why I bring her up in this conversation is that it's it's Rachel's, if, if people aren't familiar with this whole story, 
um, people in our community actually know her from her some of from her being among one of the most groundbreaking people, women in uh, women's Talmud study and uh, among many other things in the Jewish community in Los Angeles. And the reason I'm bringing her up in this conversation is that quite famously, she wrote a series of two articles. It was not intended to be a series, but she wrote two articles successively about 55 years ago at this point. The first of which was in defense of the practice of uh, visiting the mikvah of Taharata Mishpacha, and it was followed up with a rather excoriating, um, uh, what's the opposite of reclamation? Um, I, I am giving up all... Reconciliation. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, of, of all practices... She retracted. Correct. It was formal level. The formal label was about 20 years after she'd written this beautiful spiritual interpretation of Taharat HaMishpacha. She retracted it. Yeah. And, and it was a, it was a stunning, um, a stunning reread of it, of her own, of her own words and it really represents within one person's lifetime the two polarities of opinions within feminist circles, within Jewish feminist circles on mikvah and on mikvah practice. All of this was to just say in response to Teibel's comment about the complications and the complicated history of confirmation as a practice, that mikvah too has a really complicated place in a lot of systems where it simultaneously occupies a weirdly true from place in the community for some and a weirdly true uh, um, liberal with a lowercase l space for others. Uh, and there is a middle of the bell curve for those of us who love and appreciate exactly where it where it stands. Um, but but there are many Jewish rituals that kind of fall into that zone. Taiwo, feel free to just jump in again. Um. So sorry, but I can't resist. Um, in a local congregation, Otis Israel and Los Angeles rabbi people may know because that's where Aaron Alexander is now co-senior rabbi with Lauren Hulsblatt. But many, many, many years ago, I could figure it out. My kids, 25, so let's say 30 years ago, Otis Israel put in a mikvah so the Orthodox mikvah oat would not control the conversion process. And I was part of a Rosh Chodesh group where we decided at one point we were going to reclaim mikvah and use it in other ways than for family purity. So we went, or just a short version, we went once a month to that Otis Israel Mikvah um, for Rosh Chodesh. At one point, we actually asked the senior rabbi, he was horrified if he cared if we went in together. He didn't like that, so we didn't do that. We would go in one at a time and then do a ritual. And then I personally, for example, after a miscarriage, my, uh, the, whatever one, you know, the man whose child it was also, he chose not to go in, but we went to that mikvah. So 
mikvah to me is not just complicated, but it's even more valuable and fascinating because there are ways that it can be used where you can reclaim along with taharat mishpacha, or you can say, I'm going to reframe in this totally different view. I I completely agree. And it's why I love mikvah so much. And that's exactly what we're going to wind up talking about for the rest of the class today. So that's what I want to point out in our uh, constructed list of, uh, of, of, rituals. So I want to, I want to point something out to you all, and we're going to do this in, um, I'm going to do this in the chat so that you can all see this rather easily. And I can give up on my frustrating internet connection and screen share. Uh, so I'll post this in the chat. Um, this is not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Exclusive. Right. This is not completely. I'm sure that I'm missing things from this list. I'm sure we're all missing things from this list. But this is roughly the the list of commonplace communal life cycle marking events that might be marked in people's homes. It might be marked in small groups. It might be marked in a synagogue space. It might be marked in an event space. Brit Milah, baby naming, Pijon Haben, Upshur and B'nai Mitzvah, confirmation, engagement, wedding, funeral, and Shiva. And it's only when you begin to look at this list that you can start to see, as you all started to say in this conversation, and that's why I was challenging you on many of, of these things, you begin to see all the different areas in which we don't have formal Jewish rituals to mark transitions, to mark major moments, to mark important needs for people to have touchstones, like, for example, the first time that somebody has their menstrual cycle and the time that somebody hits menopause. Neither of those is marked. Like, when somebody gets a driver's license, I've done this exercise with Ziegler students and they said, what about a first kiss? What about the first time you have sex? How is there no ritual in Ju- Judaism for the first time you have sex? They're like, should there be? There's actually a, a very interesting Talmudic conversation on this. I will save for another time just because I think that this is, yeah, I, I want to keep this a PG-13 rated um, podcast, but a very, very interesting Talmudic conversation about the concerns that once people are joined together in that intimate act for the first time, that the likelihood is that there might be blood that emerges and therefore the two would have to separate out of the uh, concern for the woman then being in a state of nida, and therefore the immediate thing following the intimate act is a need for separation as opposed to a need for for cuddling, um, which begs the question, like, doesn't that then really need a ritual, right? Like, the, then don't you need something that could mark that sort of intimate moment? And so there's all sorts of, of, of needs there. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no ritual for what else? What else do we not have a ritual for? 
ritual for? Um, I just put it in the chat, but it is a ritual, but it's not a particularly helpful ritual for some women after they get a, uh, receive a get, a Jewish divorce. So I know some women who added going to mikvah. So I would call that the category of ritual innovation as opposed to invention, because get at least exists. At least there is a ritual around the giving of get that is sometimes very helpful and is sometimes very painful and sometimes both or neither. Um, and yes, sometimes women add going to the mikvah to help with that transitional stage. Um, and that's really important. And I would call that innovative because that's a layer added on top of another ritual. And that's really important. So there's innovation, then there's invention. So I think I, I'm kind of in the space right now of the inventive part of it. And what you're saying it makes perfect sense and really falls into that space of the, of, of the innovation. Um, so I wanted to take a look at some of the amazing resources to spark some of your innovation and to look at some examples of ways in which people are really innovating. We began this in earnest really tiny bit last week, looking at what our own member, uh, Dr. Sarah Benor has done with the Upsurin and her own treatment. Uh, so I mentioned that last week where I wanted to give a shout out to one of our own members. I want to share with you uh, two online resources. So the first comes out of uh, the Reconstructing Judaism Movement. Some of you know that uh, Rabbi Kaplan, much to be said about Rabbi Kaplan, including the fact that we have members who are related. I'll keep that mystery alive. Um, we have uh, that his daughter was the first bat mitzvah approximately 100 years ago. Uh, and um, yes, Yes, Tywell, she is also a member. They're all members here. Well, I could keep listing them. We have 67 members who are rabbis and a whole bunch of member of uh, members of the, um, uh, what do you call it? The Association for Jewish Studies. So um, <laughs> I could keep giving you a book list of um, just from our membership alone, particularly from the library minion. Um, so uh, we... Um, Reconstructing Judaism is one of Kaplan's many, many homes in Judaism. It was called Reconstructionist Judaism up until very recently. And his movement built after his own theological and approach to Judaism, his own theological and sociological approach to Judaism. And they created an approach to ritual online long before anybody else did. So I'm going to put this in. Um, the chat, and we're going to take a look at a couple of things together. There's a really wonderful resource here on Ritual Well. Um, this website is a website that's constructed to contain all sorts of rituals that people have created. Some of them are just liturgies. A liturgy is not a ritual. A liturgy is just something to be recited on an occasion. I'll give you an example. It's almost the 20th anniversary of September 11th. I assure you that on this website, you can find liturgies that people have brought up or created or written in honor of that occasion, right? For, for those memorials. That's not a ritual, that's a liturgy. 
those also exist on here. But here you can also find whole cloth uh, rituals, both invented and innovations on top of the traditional. So they take life cycles and they divide it into the whole life cycle in order, just like I laid it out from birth to death, starting a family, welcoming and raising children all the way through death and mourning. There are categories here that I appreciate don't really appear on the list that we created, like starting a family, right? There are rituals for people going through fertility treatments. There are, there's a whole category here just about gender and sexual identity. So coming out and gender transitioning. There is a whole category here just about growing older, milestone birthdays, grandparenting, becoming an elder, menopause, retirement, which I happen to think is a lovely area of life in which we should have more beautiful rituals. So you notice here, as an example, here you have a video and it tells you that this piece, this uh, resource is only a poem, not just, but just a poem. Here, this is also a poem. This is a complete ceremony. This is by Kitty Hoffman. It's called Third Age Ritual. It starts with a, an introduction. It talks about accompanying seniors living longer and more robust lives, helping them transition from an older identity to new, acknowledging and honoring the past and embracing the future in a process of liminal transition. It offers a whole lengthy introduction about life transition. I imagine this could go in a program, right? If you wanted to put a program into a book, there are underlying assumptions and a framework in it. She writes, I've designed the ritual with women participants in mind, partly because of their more dramatic passage as post-biological fertility and as empty nesters. The ritual could easily be adjusted for men after some consultation with them. I think that's adorable. I don't know why, I just really enjoy that language. Then she lays out the components. Who is there? One or more women making a transition from the work of middle age. And where would this take place? Near a body of water. Could be with Mayim Chaim, uh, with a mikvah, could be somewhere else. When should it take place? On Rosh Chodesh. How? It's to effect an experiential transformation. The ritual. Create a container. Ritual hand washing. It's netilat daim. It will be done by the attendants. And then what is dying? They will name what dying is. They'll write these on long strips of colored paper. They'll attach these strips to a large tree of life. They'll be singing and chanting Anna Bechoach, the song sung for Sriyat to Omer, Hanukkah, and Kabbalat Shabbat. Untangle our tangles. What is waiting? They shall yield fruit even in old age, chanting from Psalm 92. Sing Lechilach. Claim your strips of paper sacrifice all the strips of paper burned together in a large bowl the ashes retained the attendants will be singing and chanting or zarua in a closing circle surrounded by attendants the participants will name out loud their new role and or their new hebrew name if they have chosen one so they might have a new hebrew name in their transition away from their old identity in closing they'll do a ritual hand washing and the attendants will sing or chant the birds turn 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 
and then a sodat mitzvah, a celebratory meal. I would love your thoughts on this this bite of the types of rituals that exist out there. I mean, this is one of of thousands and thousands. What do you think? What's your impression? I kind of like it. I think it, I don't know, it just, it feels very heartfelt. Yeah. Is it audacious? I guess it is. But in a soft way. It's not like hitting people on the head. Okay. Okay. I would have liked to have participated in something like that at that point in my life. Um, Rabbi Cantor? Yeah. I think it's less audacious than Toshlech. Because, for example, I just made I just made Bonnie laugh. But my recollection from sources, I am old, but not that old, is that when Toshlik started, rabbis hated it as a folk custom. But the power of the ritual eventually overtook the top down rejection of it as a ritual. And now it's really normative, I think, if we're an Orthodox. And that was something that the the rabbis were actually opposed to the kinds of things you're talking about. I don't think anyone's op- opposed to it. It's just, but it's that same bottoms up versus top down, but it's not like, I don't know. Toshlech was audacious though. It isn't now. Yes. I, I agree. I think that every ritual when it was first invented, if it were invented by folk customs, which many of them were, Toshlech is a great example of that. They were audacious when they were first created. And I I think audacity is um, in the eye of the beholder. Um, but, but I like that it's bold. I like that it takes us to, I like that it takes us to water, that there's burning. <laughs> I like that there's, there are really like kinesthetic Elements, it seems to do all sorts of sensual things. Tylo, yeah. I know I had to raise my, my hand this time, but when you said spiritual audacity, I thought of a recent piece Susanna Heschel just wrote about her father, elaborating on the well known quotation that when he came back from Selma, he said to her and her mother, I think, that he felt as if her, he, his feet were praying as he walked. And I think it's her new, the intro to the new book, the new JPS bio about him, but it may be somewhere else. She just expanded that whole thing. So the spiritual audacity reminded me of when he likened, and I know you distinguish between ritual and liturgy, but in this case, he called what he was doing liturgy. Yes. And and it's definitely a Heschelian uh, part of me that that craves that because I mean he warns us as do so many Hasidic masters not to chase awe. Basically, that the moment that you have awe, you lose it. Right, the moment that you're conscientious of of being in a space of awe, you'll lose it. But that you should always be seeking awe. Um, therefore, not to chase it, but just to be open to it in a certain sense. Uh, it's not nearly as eloquent as any of his many books, but um, I am always seeking it. And I think that my conduit, I have several conduits to it. One is third eye meditation, which I am 
deeply, uh, which I'm a deep practitioner of. Um, but, but another is my, my practice of rituals. Um, and I think that I'm constantly seeking this, this year, this awe, audacity. I should like name, I should, that should be my, um, ritual app name. Audacity, get it? Um, so I, yeah, it's definitely a Heschelian part of me that, that wants to, to be a little bit audacious in the way that I invent things. And part of it is this, you know, if you, a Dayenu kernel that you should take away from this class, I hope, if you learn nothing else from me, please learn that knowledge is power because part of the way that, that I feel comfortable saying, sure, you can do this with a mikveh. Absolutely, you can burn strips of paper that you pasted onto a tree of life, et cetera, et cetera, is knowledge. The knowledge, right? Knowledge of where those, where traditions might have initially come from and knowledge of our, of, of our rabbinic sources. And the more that you know, the more you can own the tradition and then even invent pieces of the tradition for yourself. So knowledge is absolutely power. Um, and often it's power towards leniency, power towards invention, power towards relaxation. It's always true with kashrut. That's the best example of it. Right? The more you know, the more you can relax about so many things in Judaism. Uh, yes, um, Rachel, uh, Rachel, that's what we talked about last class. Uh, was that was that very ritual exactly? Um, and we and that's exactly the example I brought up. And it's such a beautiful example of the chemo um, practice. Um, and um, I I wanted to offer one last example um, for this group before before we close. And really and truly encourage you. Any of you, I'm happy to work with you one on one with this. But please um, incorporate ritual invention and innovation in your lives. One other source of doing this and really a place that curates this beautifully if you're more of a Pinterest kind of person rather than just a throw it together. Ritual Well will give you by the thousands and it's just scrapbooking it, right? It's, it's all sorts of people pasting their um, rituals there. I encourage you to check out the ceremonies on Mayim Chaim's website. Anita Diamond, who wrote the Red Ten and wrote the a bunch of books on Jewish weddings. She founded uh, Maim Chaim, which is a mikveh and education center in near Newton, Massachusetts, um, in the parking lot of a conservative synagogue there. The, uh, the mikveh at the University of Judaism, that's now the AJU, was the first non-Orthodox mikveh in the country when it opened in 1971. But Mayim Chaim occupies a really interesting place in American Jewish mikveh history because it is the the first of its kind in terms of being a mikveh education center. And they also, uh, its leadership, some of its leaders are just really extraordinary, including Carrie Bornstein, who, it's, who serves as its current executive director. Uh, they have started a network, the Living Waters. Uh, it's got a beautiful Living Waters community mikveh. Um, uh, it's got a longer name than that. Uh, it's this beautiful network of different community mikvaot all over the country um, who engage in practices like the ones that we're talking about. Uh, and they publish 
curricula. So my one of my two mikveh trainings is out of their curriculum. And um, that is a beautiful question, Rachel. If there is a ritual or bracha for saying goodbye to a friend, maybe for the last time. Now, there's a there's a tradition for greeting somebody upon not having seen them for such a long time. And what a great question if you don't think you're going to see somebody for a long time. I wonder if there is a a um, second-person uh, version of Tefillah Tadarech. Rachel, that's actually a good thought for Tefillah Tadarech. Yeah, I wonder if there could be an yeah. adaptation of Tefillah Tadarech in the second person. Right, that yeah. instead of shalom, that it should be moved to the second person, and that you could bless that person, but maybe add elements of ritual because why not add and add and add? Um, mm. It just was something I've come across differently, different, recently, when I would have liked to have a bracha, and and there wasn't one, and. She reminded me of the bracha you see, you say, when you've not seen someone for more than a year, it's about being resurrected. Yeah. Um, and right. uh, so we said, hopefully, we'll be able to say that bracha together in the future. But uh, I just oh. thought it would be really reassuring in a way. That would be a beautiful ritual to construct. I can imagine so many things. I can imagine uh, the last lines of Adon Olam Biado Afkid Ruchi um, and about kind of reconstructing that language. Fear. Yeah, about it, I entrust, may may I entrust your spirit in, in God's hand and then to be led a derech and singing that. And oh, that would be a beautiful ritual to construct. So, I want to demonstrate, I encourage you to explore Mayim Chaim's website. I want to show you one piece of what they do as well, just so you see one more dimension. It's the last dimension I want to share with you about ritual life. So it really is beautiful. Visually, it's it's a beautiful uh, set of ceremonies that they create. They have seven steps down into the mikvaot. What they've created in the center um, is a beautiful space with beautiful human souls as mikveh guides, not mikveh ladies, but mikveh guides. And they have an intention set. And this is, I want to share with you this ceremony called For Healing Toward Mental Health. So this is an immersion that people um, can practice, can sign up to go to the mikveh there. There are different pools present there the gender neutral space in that respect and makes it possible for people it was one of the very first spaces in the country also where people could go uh, who were wanted to have a mikvah practice or a practice around uh, gender transition where it was practically possible because there was a gender neutral space in which to do this so the kavanah the intentionality is i have come here today to acknowledge the challenges in my life May this immersion help me find renewed energy and an opening to my healing. May God grant me courage to face my challenges, strength to continue my journey, and peace with what the future holds. And then to be read at the mikvah's edge before entering the water. As I immerse within these living waters, I seek healing from my mind, my heart, my body, and my spirit. May my mind be clear. May my heart be open. May my body be renewed. May my spirit find its deepest desire. 
And then this is right before the tevila, before the immersion. Slowly descend the steps into the mikveh. While in the water, take a moment to reflect deeply on what has brought you here today. Immerse completely so that every part of your body is covered in the warm water of the mikveh. When you emerge, recite the following. Bitsar li ekra. In my time of trouble, I cried out for help. In this moment, I know that I need support to move toward balance. Let me recognize from where that help will come as I continue my journey of healing. Second immersion. Take a deep breath and exhale as you gently and completely immerse for a second time. When you emerge, recite the following. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshana bitvilah b'mayim chayim. Blessed are you, God, majestic spirit of the universe, who makes us holy by embracing us in living waters. Third immersion, read before you immerse. Hinani, here I stand, hoping to move through this transition toward ease and balance. I acknowledge the challenges of the past. I acknowledge, as well, my own source of strength, which has brought me to this moment. Relax and let your body soften as you slowly and completely immerse for the third time. When you emerge, recite the following. Blessings will come. May I recognize my blessings and embrace them with hope. There are people out there who have crafted stunning resources. And you are all craftspeople yourselves. You can create beautiful things too. And I'm happy to be your guide person if this is something that you want to do. Or if you know people who could really use this. There are no barriers. It's both the narrow and the expansive definition of this ritual. I hope that this has done for you a, a, a sense of redefinition. Right? Ritual is not everything, but ritual is so much more than what I, the box that I think people have put it in. Um, and I really hope that this can spark some sense of innovation and invention in many of you. And it's been a blessing to spend this little time with you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.